HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. I'm your host, Severin. Today we're talking about grain. We talked about grain a lot recently, but now we're going back to grain and we're talking um, with Grayson Gill. What an amazing name, Grayson. The grain man and owner of Belgard Bakery. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we don't have that many people on the show from Louisiana. I wonder if you could just situate us a little bit in the food landscape um, of this, the bottom of our Great River, the source of our, uh, of the, 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 the Louisiana Purchase is named for your state. You have amazing food culture, all these things. Will you just give us a little introduction to your part of the world? Yeah, we live in a... I'd say the most culturally diverse and rich state in the entire country. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but it is an incredibly beautiful culture and state that we have, not only in central and south Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Lafayette, New Orleans, but also in the northern part of the state, which is mostly pine forest, uh, big watershed. And we are coming up here in New Orleans on our tricentennial of colonization by, you know, Europeans, the Spanish and the French, and also the English. So in in, uh, 2018, we're going to have a tricentennial celebration put on by the city. So that's 300 years of European foodways in the city. And the city passed hands through originally the French under the Spanish uh, English-American, back to the French for a second, and then during the Louisiana Purchase 
As you mentioned, it was transferred over and became a territory of the U.S., and we had statehood achieved in 1812. So we have an incredibly rich and diverse foodways, um, a culture of the foodways, not only due to the amount of time, but due to the quantity of cultures that have been here, not only the natives, but also the European and African, as well as Caribbean influences that we've had in the diaspora, and they've created this incredible patois of cultural foodways and music and literature and just living in general down here in Louisiana. So it sounds like you're there by choice. I'm here by choice, yeah. My my best friend's mom is from here. Uh, he and I were living together in Europe, and I was in New England for a, a winter actually on a farm doing woofing in New Hampshire, and I called Tyler in February after I had finished shoveling a roof and full of snow. It did a really meticulous, nice job of cleaning the snow out of the way, and the old gentleman that owned the farm came out from his office to let me know that he had just heard that another Northeastern was on the way. And that's when I called Tyler, who was down back in Louisiana, and I asked him what the weather was like, and he said that it was 85 degrees, and that was the middle of February, and within about a week, I was on a bus, and I had moved down here. That's a pretty precise. That's a pretty precise account. Um, yeah. And so let's talk. Also, I mean, it. You know, I'm getting lots of email about Standing Rock, and so I'm thinking a lot about refineries upstream, downstream. And as a downstream guy, um, looking right out at the dead zone from the Mississippi and in the corridor of toxicity that is part of the refinery network. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about the environmental contamination and. Um, forces that you're contending with down there? I think the biggest issue that I confront as a baker and as someone that owns a stone mill is that we're just really in the grip of the commodity system here in southern Louisiana. So the top, well, the top five crops that we grow in state, four of those are non-edible. So it's stuff for ethanol or it's like cotton or it's stuff for seed. So we're really disenfranchising not just a fraction of the population, but a vast majority of our population because of, the, I think, the policy-level choices that people are making when it comes to agriculture here, not only in southern Louisiana, but in the entire state. And I think the biggest irony is that we've hit the last stats for 2014 was more than $4 billion that GMO corn and all of the implements and pesticides and everything that are used to grow that GMO corn, which everyone as well aware is used from us and which has created a dead zone, we go ahead and do that to ourselves on top of what's already happening to us upriver. So it's this big paradox and this big tragedy and this big irony that all the practices and the behaviors and the ingredients that are being used up upriver from us to create the second largest dead zone in the world, we're duplicating ourselves by growing so much corn and so many soybeans. And, and we export 90% of the seafood that we catch in state, and we also export 90% of our food, or excuse me, we import 90% of our food. So we have a state with, depending on your opinion and where you are, we have four or five growing seasons in Louisiana. So there's absolutely no reason that we should be importing any food, um, but the fact is that we're importing 90% of our food and then sending out 
90% of our seafood. And there's quite a few restaurants here in New Orleans and in the rest of the state that import shrimp from Malaysia or farm-raised catfish, whether it's from Mississippi or Vietnam or China. So there's a gigantic irony here, whether you want to attribute it to, you know, policy-level choices that people make or capitalism. I don't think it necessarily matters in that sense, but the fact that we're suffering so much because of choices that people at the top make, and it's not even a trickle-down, but it goes back to the anatomy of where we live, and we live in the womb of America, the very bottom of the biggest river system in North America. And I think that we, we suffer the most when it, comes to, when it comes to these things. So let's talk, about your, let's talk about your core business there, your mill, your bakery, what you make, who you, who you make it for, and the, the supply chain that you're trying to build. I own a commercial bakery, and we've been in business for just shy of four years now. We have a 40-inch stone mill that was built in Vermont by my friend Andrew at Elmore Mountain Bread. I've always had a bit of a stone mill at the bakery that I've always, you know, worked at or different bakeries um, and kind of graduated and would equate it to kind of a gateway drug in terms of having a little stone mill just to make some fresh flour, and then it got bigger and bigger until finally... I called Andrew and he decided to build us a 40-inch stone mill with natural Vermont granite and the whole unit weighs a little bit less than 3,000 pounds. So when I say that we're a commercial bakery, that means that we don't do any direct retail from the bakery. We just sell to local markets. Uh, We sell to Whole Foods and we sell to restaurants. So two-thirds of the business is just wholesale to restaurants, cafes, other places like that. And then the balance is going to be local markets, uh, Whole Foods, and other shops that resell our bread. So on a busy week, we make a little bit more than 5,000 loaves of bread by hand. We do a type of fermentation called retarded fermentation. So the dough is fermented overnight in the walk-in at a pretty cold and uh, cold temperature for a long period of time. Everything ferments for at least 16 to, to 20 hours before it's actually baked. So we're always mixing the dough today for tomorrow. That is really good for production in terms of lifestyle and the way that people can live in terms of having a safe, equitable life that doesn't require a graveyard shift. And it also allows the bread to be a lot more digestible and a lot more healthy for the people that eat it. And let's talk about the people who, I mean, so I'm also one of these people who's become I know this is probably really frustrating and annoying. You always have to talk about this as a baker, but I'm another one of these people who has gotten a funny gut and gurgles around and can't eat conventional anything and gets a headache from potato chips and is delicate of gluten and suspicious of glyphosate and feeling like my bioflora is impacted by this commodity fascist Monsanto broccoli of the world. Um, Will you just discuss a little bit um, as a baker, from a baker's perspective um, some of the factors that's going on in there and is that something your customers are finding your, your breads are an alternative, obviously, and why is it that your breads are more digestible? Yeah, we have quite a few customers that I, I'll start by saying that someone that has celiac, which I think is maybe 1% of the American population of you know 300 million people that we have in this country, these people are going to be completely divorced from the conversation that we'll have in the next few minutes about this because that's a serious, diagnosable, biological 
you know, uh, impediment that these people have to, to wheat and to gluten. But anybody with a gluten sensitivity or like a mild gluten allergy, whatever, whatever the semantics surrounding it are, the fact is, as a baker and as someone that's been baking professionally for eight years, I'm convinced that it's the way that the bread or that the pastry or the pasta is treated on the processing level. So we've been eating wheat, and you can argue that wheat really civilized humankind in the Fertile Crescent when we settled down to agriculture, you know, 8,000, 10,000 years ago. The, one of the very first things that people, um, that people sat down to do was to cultivate grain and to select grain. And at one point there were, I think, maybe 10,000 varieties of, of just wheat available um, globally. So it's nothing to do with wheat, and it's nothing to do with gluten. It's the same way that people may have a lactose allergy or an allergy to dairy products. I'm, I'm convinced as a professional baker that it comes down to the processing. So bread, pizza, all of these things are inherently fermented foods, but what you have now is commercial processes being applied to the baking or to the pizza setting in the same way that what's now called conventional ag has kind of usurped traditional organic agriculture. You've had these same principles and these same behaviors applied to places like pizzerias or bakeries. And on top of that, it's happening in the milling industry. So for something that was up until about 100, 150 years ago, solely a fermented product, typically using a natural sourdough, uh, a wild yeast, you now have put into a machine, beat to a pulp by a mechanical machine, not necessarily fermented at all, pulled out, put on a conveyor belt to be shaped, um, to be proofed in a very hot box, to be baked in an oven and then run through a slicer, or they even have machines now that almost instantly freeze and cool a loaf of bread so they can slice it and package it. So. My, my belief is that the milling industry, which has created white flour um, about 100, 150 years ago, on top of agricultural practices of spraying wheat with glyphosate or spraying it with other fertilizers or chemicals, on top of what's happening at the bakery, is creating an artificial allergy that so many people have with wheat and with wheat products. So I think inherently there's nothing wrong with wheat and there's nothing wrong with gluten. I think it's the way that we're treating wheat more than any other place in the bakery that's causing people to have these issues, these reactions, or these sensitivities. So as we continue to evolve our community grain sheds and the regional, more regional and direct pools uh, on a more appropriate scale with more adapted grain, with better soil and land management practices and often older varieties or more resilient varieties that have a greater genetic heterogeneity. Um, what are some of the next steps in that pathway? Um, and what have you been discovering with your milling um, as the kind of, you know, the project of the next five years? Like, what do you see next? I think the next step is really democratizing access to fresh flour and to organic food. And every time that I go to a meeting or I go to have a conversation or I meet with chefs or whomever it may be, 
The most important thing is that, you know, I, I'm a baker and I have a mill as well, too, but I never want to isolate grain from anything else, whether it's vegetables, whether it's fruit, whether it's talking to fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico who are affected by the choices of the grains that we eat in New Orleans or the grains that we eat in Illinois because of that runoff is creating a dead zone that they have to work around. We have a $4 billion seafood industry in Louisiana that's really been decimated not only by Katrina and not only by the oil spill, but also by the choices that we make as a community within the United States. And I think it's really, really imperative that we stop isolating conversations about the water table in Illinois from talking about a local grain economy in Louisiana or New Orleans. And it may be hard and it may be far-fetched to keep in touch with all those people, but I think it's a very, very unhealthy choice that a lot of people have kind of been corralled into thinking when it comes to keeping what they do and who they are isolated from other people when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to policy, when it comes to education. You know, we're, we're the third most um, food insecure state in the union, and Louisiana has the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world. And I think there's a big correlation between access to fresh, organic local food and its affordability and incarceration and education and job opportunities. And I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's productive to keep those in their silos or to keep those people or those groups that are working against that separated from one another, whether it's artificial or whether it's philosophical, whatever it may be, I think it's a really incorrect behavior to have. So for the next five years, my goal is having access to more local and more regionally grown organic grain which hypothetically is going to allow me to lower the price of the flour that we sell and to get it into more restaurants, more bakeries, schools, senior centers, whatever it may be. So on the surface, that's the goal. And then when you dig beneath that, you find that there's a gigantic educational component to teaching people how to work with fresh flour. Nobody really learns how to play music on an electric instrument. They typically learn how to play something acoustically and then they plug in. So when you approach somebody that really has only learned how to cook uh, or bake with white flour, it's almost like they've only learned to drive on an automatic shift car. So to go and to bring them a really nice, you know, antique car with a manual transmission and then you tell them, hey, this flour costs more than what you're paying now and it's a lot harder to work with because it's a fresh, live ingredient. When you're going to place your first order, you're really expecting a lot. So there's a gigantic curriculum that needs to be attached to people talking and using and making fresh stone-milled whole grain flour available to as many people as possible. But we've been so inured to white flour and kind of how dead and how insipid it is that we have to create a brand-new infrastructure in a brand new culture around fresh whole grain stone milk flowers because everything about it is different, whether it's the price, whether it's the use, whether it's the storage, or whether it's the adaption of it in the kitchen or in the bakery. So more and more, whether it's teaching a class with med students from Tulane University, which we did two weeks ago, or it's having a grain dinner with state representatives um, from Baton Rouge and other chefs locally, or it's having a six-hour class with, you know, just a bus tub and a digital scale here at the bakery teaching the public 
how to make fresh whole grain bread at home with you know $20 worth of equipment. I think all of that is going to create to the bigger quilt of change when it comes to making fresh stone milled whole grains more accessible to the community at large. Yeah, one of the challenges I see is getting into alignment with and into cahoots with and deeper in in the coherence with our adjacent movements. I just was, you know, I'm doing this land, basically land reform symposium, and I just went over and flyered all around and talked to the people at the at the food bank and the, you know, people who deal with used bread, basically, and also empowering a lot of small business startups with their kitchens. Um, in, in, um, they're often women making their traditional foods and selling them on a small business basis, you know, and so unfortunate how the food movement and the hunger community are not as deeply in cahoots as they could be because, um, one of them, you know, has a tendency towards a higher end market and the other one depends for its base, for the majority of its calories on the bottom end of the industrial food system and the companies that donate them all the product that they need to distribute. So um, it's so beautiful that you're using your bakery as a place for cultural and activist coherence and you're kneading it all together and rising it up. I see also that you have so much interesting travel and studying of breads around the world. I wonder if in the last five minutes, you could talk a little bit about your travels and your kind of creative practice in this community of bakers uh, and what you're, you know, just a little of what you're tracking as you're out in the world looking at these different um, foodways. Yeah, I think the biggest pleasure that I have from, from traveling when it comes to baking, I mean, for the past eight years, any any trip that I've ever taken, whether it's to Belgium or whether it's to Seattle has always been bread focused so it sounds like romantic sometimes to tell people like oh I was in Paris and I was in Italy in September for two weeks and I was in Sweden for two weeks in January but you know I was going to bed at 10 o'clock each night and spending time with millers and bakers so yes it's fun and it's a beautiful setting but at the end of the day it's all part of a bigger agenda mostly to understand what other people are going through and I think most importantly where they're going. And the more that I've traveled, particularly in, in Western Europe and now in Southern Europe, I see that the commodity system has a stranglehold on, on everybody. So it was a really weird epiphany that I had at the Slow Food Terra Madre conference in September. But for better or for worse, globalization has presented everybody with the same problems. So in some way, I think that's a positive thing because when you talk to or when you meet uh, water rights activists from Nigeria or Bikini Faso or you meet a farmer from Indonesia or you meet a couscous women's, you know, cooperative leader from Morocco, for the most part, we're all talking about the same issues and we're all struggling against the same factors. I think the context is slightly different and the societies in which we live are also different. But at the end of the day, it was really fascinating for me to have that epiphany that we're all up against the same thing. And I think in many ways, even though it is sad and it is very arduous, I think that's a really special, beautiful thing and an important way to look at it, that we're not isolated. And in, in Northern Sweden, 
they face the same issues to local grain that we do in Louisiana and in France and in Italy and in Spain and in Belgium. They may be a little bit more advanced in some ways when it comes to EU restrictions on GMO crops or accessibility of, of, of farming or land access to people in certain countries. But at the end of the day, I think we're all facing something very, very similar. So the most important thing um, is not to always harp on or to always listen to these really drastic narratives that people have about how desperate and, and how kind of ugly things are and, and, and how hard it is. But I think working within models and looking at who's who's done what that's been really exceptional or really inspirational or really practical. So domestically looking at what Amber has done at Maine Grains or what Jennifer has done at Carolina Ground in Asheville, North Carolina, or what Nan Kohler has done at Griston Toll in Los Angeles, California. To me, like these are very big beacons, and I think it's also really important that it's all women doing some of the most important and incredible work domestically, too, and you find that internationally. So as, as I travel, I think that's the biggest thing that I look for is models, because we all know how bad it is and how difficult it is, but I think the biggest and most important thing is to say, what do we want to aspire towards? What do we want to achieve? And who's done that? or who at least has gotten themselves on that path and how do they do that? Because as Carlo Petrini said at the opening convocation for Terra Madre this year, something that really stuck with me is that self-esteem is going to change the world. And I think that you meet more people like that and more people with an inherently positive perspective on a really arduous situation that we're all faced with. These are the people making strides and not knowing whether things are going to change today or tomorrow and not sure how that change is going to occur, but being set and being confident and being courageous in who you are and in what you do and being equitable with that love and with that justice and with the desire to achieve something is something that's absolutely imperative to, to what we're doing and to who we are. Whoa, dude. So fun. I'd love to be on that path with you, and what an inspiration. Um, I'm happy to report that a lot of those names that you mentioned were at the grains gathering that we did last year, a regional grains gathering, and we have good gathered data from that and a report that's coming out as soon as all of our overtaxed people are done with the Kibera Coalition Conference. Great. I also wanted to hashtag quickly the seed journey. Um, which is a project of the Future Farmers, which is an art collective led by Amy Francis-Keith in San Francisco. They are sailing, and I'm helping on a couple of the stops. Um, they are sailing from Oslo to Palestine, carrying ancient grains and connecting the grain keepers in those different ports. Uh, as the DAS, you know, basically in a reverse diaspora back to the genesis territory of our grain crops. Um, and you can find this information on futurefarmers.com slash seed journey. I'm going to help them in Potmos and Greece with some windmills uh, at workshops and hopefully also in Brittany with the peasant bakers that are there. We are running out of time, and I have to go on to the community radio now to promote the, almost, I mean the symposium, but I want to make sure that everyone knows that your work is in the almanac and thank you very much for your time and I really look forward to, to staying in touch with everybody yeah let's meet in person more 
Absolutely. Okay. All right. Have have a great day. I'll talk to you soon, okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 